You're listening to Unfinished Business, the weekly discussion show about the business end of web design and creative industries. And today is Thursday, March 28th, 2013. This is episode 12. I'm Andy, and while Anna's on vacances en France, I'm joined by my guest co-host, somebody I've been really looking forward to speaking to, designer Laura Kalbag. Hi, Laura. Hello. This show wouldn't be possible without our fantastic sponsors, the Beyond Teleron Conference and Blush. Blush does beautiful letterpress printing of cards, stationery and more for designers and artists. And Beyond Teleron's a conference and workshop event for the web community happening May 27th to the 29th in Dusseldorf in Germany. We'll talk more about them later in the show. And you can find all the links we mention in this episode in our show notes. You'll find those at unfinished.bz slash 12. That's the number 12. So I've got a bone to pick with you, Laura Kalbag. Right, right, okay. I had to look up your phone number today, so I did a search in my inbox for Laura Kalbag, and you sent me, over the course of all these years, you sent me a total of three emails, uh, four emails, three about this show, and one, here we go, 5th of January, 2009. Do you remember doing this? Hi, Was I researching Andy. a project? Yes, I'm doing a little project at uni to help my fellow graphic communication students. I'm going to embarrass you with this now. Go on. <laughs> that designing for the web is nothing like designing for print. Being the only web head on my course of 60. Wow. I'm forever fighting the usability and accessibility fights. Well, nothing changes much, does it, really? No. <laughs> and comments like, what's the point in designing for the web? You can't use enough typefaces. So that was 2009. And you then said that you were going to send me a copy of whatever you were going to do. And you never did. Yeah, I never actually, it didn't actually come to anything. Huh. Uh, that'd be why. Yeah. I think I ended up, if I remember rightly, I think I was encouraged to do a different kind of research project that maybe wasn't so much about the web. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> because that's what most of my years at university seemed to be, was a lot of me going, I want to do web stuff and being told I should do something different. It wasn't a web course that you did? No, I did graphic communication. And right. I, st- I specialised in interactive pathway. And so I did get to try loads of cool different stuff, like animation and things like that. And the, a few of the tutors were, were really lovely, really encouraging, don't get me wrong. But a few of them were more traditional um, graphics tutors and rather less encouraging. And so I had to try to sort of try to please as many as possible in order to get a good mark at the end of the three years so how did you go from that then to being as knowledgeable as you are about the web stuff was this all self-taught yeah yeah oh yeah well i say self-taught i learned off the web and good books and stuff like that so i think i i think i was starting to learn about the web at a lucky point where there were a lot of good books around and I was, people had got over the tables thing and there were a lot of clever CSS techniques and things emerging. And so I think that was quite a good point to be starting to teach myself web development. So you design and develop sites. I think you're a bit like me really, aren't you? You kind of do a bit of both. Yeah. A bit of kind of crossover. Um, and you're freelance. So why, why did you go down that route rather than 
down the route of getting a job. Are you unemployable like me? <laughs> I, I suspect I might be. I'm a little bit argumentative. <laughs> but also, I, I just couldn't find anyone locally that I wanted to work for. The only company I interviewed with, or actually I had a preliminary interview before even meeting them, and I went back, looked at their site, and it was all built with tables. And this was too late to be using tables. And so I decided actually I'd maybe just give it a go by myself because locally there wasn't anyone I wanted to work with and I didn't want to end up having to move to London just to get a job. No. It was a bit much sort of straight out of university. That was a bit too intimidating for me. I was telling the students at uh, Ulster Uni last week when I was up there that I've never actually got a job that I've applied for. Never, what, not once. I've gone for interviews for, I don't know, three or four jobs in my life and ne- I didn't get any of them. But you must have done um, a job before you were a designer. You, yeah. Yeah, you say yeah but I, I always got I always got jobs based on knowing people. You know, you bump into somebody uh, and they yeah. go, oh, I know who you are. You're the digital photography guy, you know, and we're looking for somebody. And that was that. And the only times that I ever got, that I ever did interviews for jobs, I never got them. <laughs> <laughs> I think the only other interviews I've, I did interviews for Supermarket, so I got that. I worked in Safeway and Morrison's. That was very exciting. Um, I do remember being doing an interview to work at the library when I was younger, and I didn't get it, and I was really disappointed. I really wanted to work in a library. <laughs> <laughs> Ambitious, I am. So, you're doing work for clients now? Yes. Um, general client work, local, national? Uh but actually, very rarely local, mostly national, occasionally in other countries. Um, I'm not fussy. I do most of my work remotely. So occasionally right. I might meet a client in person. I might go visit them in London or something, but I pretty much almost exclusively do work over the web. We've just launched a site today. Um, I'll put a link to it in the show notes for really lovely company. Um, it's a tractor dealer in North Wales. You can imagine it's quite a rural area. Yeah. And they've, and it's a family business and they're very Welsh. <laughs> you know, really Welsh. Um, it's not a bad thing, obviously. No. Um, and we first did a site for them in, I think it was about 2004. And they kept the same site all those years. And then, to be honest, I'd lost track of them. And then they came back just before Christmas and said, you know, we'd like a new site. Are you still making websites? Um, so I did, I just, just done this job and, you know, not a lot of money, but I wanted to do a really nice job because, you know, there's a lot of faith to having somebody and come back after all these years. Oh yeah. Was it interesting redesigning your own work as well? It was, it was, I'm not going to even going to put a link to, we've archived the old site off and I'm not going to put a link to it because, oh God, can you imagine back then what this thing looked like? And oh, but that's a good thing. It's a good thing to look God. back and see how much progress you've made and how much progress the web has made in general. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe it was, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> really lovely people. You're not going to convince me yet. Really lovely, lovely people to work with. And, um, one of the perks about doing this job, cause isn't, to be honest, it's not a lot of money. Um, but I really wanted to do it. So th- I'm going to get to drive a tractor. <laughs> this is part of the deal. Cause if, I mean, these things are massive. It's like, massive thing huge thing like wheels as big as me 
So um, every five-year-old boy's dream. Well, and girls, probably a lot of girls as well, to be fair. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm going to get to drive like one of these massive great tractors. We need to arrange this. Um, so in a few weeks' time, I'm going to go out and I'm going to drive something. I mean, like the biggest thing I've ever sat in. It's going to be so cool. That's a good photo opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I should you do that, really. Tractor. Yeah, no, absolutely. I might have to, like, you know, wear farmer's tweeds or yeah, something. Yeah, get like a that. flat cap for the occasion. <laughs> What's the craziest thing you've ever swapped some work for? I don't, I don't think I've, I think I've only done maybe two things where I've ever swapped work and neither of them were for things that were that crazy. So I've, I swapped work for a copy of, um, the, the creative suite, um, Adobe creative suite CS3. Which I that's not a bad deal. No, that was I thought that was a good deal, and I, well, I've still I still got it. That's the the version that I still use, <laughs> quite out of date. And and re- fairly recently, I did swap some web advice and a bit of CSS for some headshots, which was it was that was quite fun. I I hate having photos taken, um, but it was with uh, Paul Clark, a really really talented photographer, and. So he took some good shots. So that's quite a good swap. <laughs> we, I think we did a swap. Um, and I think this is like the year 2000 or something. And we swapped a day's work for a pair of gates. There was yeah. a local timber company that made gates. And we <laughs> I did a day's work for a set of gates. And that website is long gone, but we've still got the gates. So, so you got the value there. <laughs> I reckon, I reckon that we got the best deal out of that. And of course, I did do a morning's work for that famous gorilla mask that I love so much. I, I do keep trying to convince uh, the personal trainers at my gym that they want me to work on their website and swap it for some personal training sessions. But that's partly because I want to help work on their website as well. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I often think that you know, we shouldn't really be saying this on a podcast. God, I'm going to get shot by the inland revenue. But, you know, if you can get paid in iTunes vouchers. Whoa. Now there's a thought. It's, well, though, iTunes vouchers don't pay the bills, though. <laughs> I think no, money no. tends to be quite useful in those situations. Well, that's, that's what my wife Sue said when we got the gorilla mask. Cause she was like, you can't, I, I can't take that to Sainsbury's. Cause it's expensive. It's like a 500 quid mask. And she, I can't take that to Sainsbury's. So and then I offered that actually, yeah, I'd wear it to Sainsbury's and I'd push the trolley <laughs> wearing a mask. And, um, but no, she didn't. You could scare, scare them into giving you shopping for free. I wonder how long it would be before you got thrown out. Oh, I don't, you get some, I, well, from working in a supermarket, you do get some fairly strange people. Um, but I think as long as they've got shirt and shoes on, I don't think you have any right to throw them out. I could just go around and film a basket full of bananas, which is a real stereotype. Obviously, <laughs> that, yeah, but know. that would be a, a brilliant. Um, I think that would make a few people laugh, wouldn't it? I don't know. Maybe I should, maybe I should do that because I can do the walk. I did um, when I was at sixth form. We had this charity week, and I did packing at the supermarket for to raise money for charity, dressed as a teddy bear, and that did raise a few eyebrows because it was. I think it was pyjama day. Everyone was wearing their pyjamas that day. It was the theme. And I decided to be a bit different and be the teddy bear. I've got yeah, photos of me in teddy bear outfit. 
Because I, I used to work in Sainsbury's when I was a kid. I used to hate those kind of charity things, whatever, you know, like children in need we have now, you know, that kind of, oh, no, I never want to do that. Never want to do that. Well, it's not fun, but I don't think the idea is to be fun. It's the idea is to get some money, guilt people into giving money to charity. Yeah, that's always a good cause. So I'm looking at a tweet here. Who's this tweet from? Let me just look this up on my phone. Um, Oliver Borders, whoever this is. Do you know Oliver Borders? I don't think so, but I'm very bad with names. Yeah, no, I'm just looking at his avatar here. Uh, Guildford, that's down your way, isn't it? Yeah, that's just up the road from me. I hope Laura Kalberg likes Planet of the Apes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, did you, as I was a bit sad, actually, this weekend, I'm going to need to tell you about this. This weekend was the anniversary of the death of Mickey, the world's cleverest chimpanzee. What constant, why is he the world's cleverest chimpanzee? Well, he was called that because he was obviously really clever. It's a really sad story. Um, my nana went before she died. Bless her. Because he was clever. Um, <laughs> that the sad, you know, what's the sad part? Yeah, well, she, she gave me this, oh. this, uh, this kind of leaflet from, uh, Liverpool Zoological Park, which was like a zoo that they had up in Liverpool back in the 1930s. And on this flyer was Mickey, the world's cleverest chimpanzee, amongst other things. And, uh, Don Leno and his lions. That was another one. <laughs> anyway, so I got really fascinated by this whole, Mickey character, this chimpanzee, and it turns out that he had a really sad story, oh. and he ended up he ended up escaping, and um, being shot. She's really sad. He got shot. What do you um, do? You do something wrong? Why well, no, he he him? got out. He got out. And it's, this is the really thing. This is back in. The, I, I actually found, and I need to I need to order them. But I found that there are postcards of Mickey the chimp, and they they, they apparently show Mickey the chimp playing football because apparently he really loved his football. Um, and smoking as well. They they gave the chimp cigarettes That's in the sad. zoo. Can you imagine? What did he light up with? This is why. Did he like? Did they give him matches? Oh, they must. They must. Did they have? Yeah, they must have done. Oh, that's so. That used to always be the novelty, though, didn't it? And smoking chimps. Sm- well, generally, animals. Well, I guess you probably couldn't get anything else than a chimp to smoke. Yeah. So he escaped. Um, he was a bit of an unhappy chimp, and he escaped in 1938 and uh, attacked a bunch of people and got shot. There was an off-duty uh, army serviceman um, with a revolver who shot him. Oh, that's so sad. I know. And then this isn't the end of the story, though, because <laughs> as, if, as if being shot and chained up and smoked to death wasn't bad enough, the zoo had him stuffed. And he went on display in the Lewis department store in Liverpool and was on display for like a year. And then when the Second World War came, the um, in the Blitz, this shop got firebombed and then Mickey went up in smoke. Which is a really sad story. That's sad. And what a strange place to display a stuffed chimp. Why would you put a... Dis- I don't know, exactly. So, I'm, you know, I'm kind of... I'm getting more fascinated. I've been doing this. I'm putting together uh, a new workshop about... CSS layouts for responsive design. And I always like to come up with a theme for, you know, all the example files. I never just like to do anything random. I like to have everything kind of designed up together. Yeah. So this, um, this particular theme is going to be all about world famous chimps. Of, of course. <laughs> it makes Absolutely. sense. Just extending your knowledge of chimps. Yeah. Hammer the Astro Chimp. You should Google him. He was a chimp that they sent up into space. Oh, there was quite a few of those, weren't there? 
Yeah. So yeah, Hamley Astro Chimp. I've been reading all about him. Do you do that? Do you put together kind of like weird, <laughs> weird things? I don't. I I occasionally I'll just decide that I really want to know about something in particular. I don't. Off. I don't really have the time. I don't think I've done anything where I've used much example content. But yeah, I I sort of go off on research tangents sometimes just because I find something really interesting. Particularly films. I I do love a good IMDB and trivia about films after I've watched a film. I think it's part of the viewing experience. Oh man, going down one of those Wikipedia rabbit holes. It's great. You find out the most fascinating things. We've been talking about films on the show, um, but to be honest, I didn't I didn't watch Spirited Away this week. Don't tell Anna. I think it was on TV as well. It was. It was. We 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 videoed it on. We recorded it on Sky Plus. So, yeah, I will get to watch it, but should have watched it this week and didn't. <laughs> You'd be able to watch it for next week, so Anna doesn't get cross with me. No, no, she's got. Yeah, well, she, we've got a couple of weeks because I'm off to Japan next week. Ah, oh, you were going Monday. to watch it in preparation for going to Japan, weren't you? Yes, as if we need. Any preparation? We're getting freaked out, actually, now. Sue's getting really freaked out about Japan. Somebody sent us, somebody that lives there, sent us uh, a video saying, I'm going to take you to a dancing squid restaurant. Have you heard of this? Oh, dancing squid? Do they they put something on the dead squid that makes it all move? Is that? Yeah. Is that, yeah. It's, like, it's like a big rice bowl with a squid, whole squid on it. And then they pour soy sauce. And there's some kind of reaction. And it makes the squid move. And I showed her this. She's like, is there a McDonald's nearby? <laughs> she thinks she's just going to, just going to eat in McDonald's the whole time. Oh no, Japanese food's amazing. Oh, I know. I know. I can't wait. I can't yeah. wait. I love sushi and stuff. You have to try all of, all of the straight. There's melon bread. Have you ever had melon bread? No. So a couple of my friends went to Japan and they came back talking about this amazing melon bread. So we went up to the Japan center in London to find it. And it's this, it's amazing. It's like bread that's wrapped in sweet cookie dough and baked. So you get it's it's called melon bread because it looks like a melon, not because it tastes like melon. And it's yeah, it's just this really nice sweet bread. Mm. So that's worth trying. And I guess fa- fairly safe in terms of new food to try out there. Oh, I can't wait. I mean, I went. I was in Japan a couple of years ago, and oh, I just had such a great time. We did, I did this, I was naughty though, because I would phone up and I'd say, oh, we had cow's noses today. <laughs> and I'd be winding her up about the food that we were eating. And then, <laughs> I don't know whether you've heard this story, but our friend Satoshi, who's, uh, he's organizing these workshops that I'm going to go out to do, uh, in a couple of weeks. And I did this thing when I met him where I said, um, as you do when you, you go traveling, I said, oh, and if you're ever in the UK, you know, just come and visit. Um, never actually expecting him to do that. <laughs> and then about three months later, I get this email saying, I come Friday. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, a lovely guy, Satoshi. So I picked him up from the airport and brought him home. And Sue and Alex are in the kitchen and, you know, he's very respectful because he brings presents and stuff. And, you know, it's everything's lovely. And then I was prime, I primed him. Um, and our cat came in through the cat flap in the back door of the kitchen. And uh, Satoshi just looked and with a deadpan straight face pointed to the cat and went, is that for dinner? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's fun. Oh, man, it's so much fun. And the other thing, he was fascinated by the weirdest things. He was fascinated by sheep, weirdly. 
And we went out, we went out to Manchester one day to meet Chris Mills and it was a typical kind of Welsh afternoon. It was throwing it down with rain. And he said, uh, the sheep are in outside. And I said, yeah. He said, they get wet. And I went, yeah. And he went, they must get so heavy. <laughs> That's a very good point. <laughs> Never picked one up, but I said, why, why, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. Brilliant. I should talk about our first sponsor of the show. Um, it's Beyond Telerand. Have you been to Germany? No, I'm not very well travelled, unfortunately. Oh, it's a lovely place. I'd like to I, go. Yeah, I've not been to Dusseldorf, um, which is where this Beyond Telerand conference is. It's a conference and workshop event for the web community that's curated by a really good friend of mine, actually, Mark Thiel. Um, you might have met Mark. I have. He's lovely. He's a very really, talented photographer as well. Really, really lovely guy. Anyways, organising this this event again, uh, it's in May 27th to the 29th in Dusseldorf in Germany. And as well as being a really good photographer, he's one of the best conference organisers that I know. So everything about Beyond Telerand has his personal style all over it, uh, including the speakers, because he, he likes to choose people that he wants to hear and... It's like he then just invites an audience around him to listen, which is really cool. So this year's speakers include Josh Brewer from Twitter and Mandy Brown. She's the co-founder of Editorially, which I haven't got an invite for yet. I haven't got a beta for it for anybody out there that's listening. Um, and there's Christian Harmon and Blaine Cook, Aaron Gustafson, Elliot J. Stocks, James Victory, and uh, Brad Frost as well. You met Brad Frost? No, I haven't, but he's coming to the uk uh, i think in the summer to do a workshop and he's going to be in brighton so i saw that I, I, well, I, i'll be in brighton by then so and um, i'm moving down to brighton nice so i'm hoping to say hello to him center of the universe well i've i know i've followed brad for a while and i really really wanted to to meet him um and he was we were both speaking at that uh smashing conference in germany last year so the perfect opportunity. And Alex came out with me. We had like a, you know, a, a boy holiday, um, for the week, went out to this conference. And of course, you know, Brad's kind of nearer Alex's age than, than I am. Um, and you know, they hung out together and stuff like that. And I was like, Oh, okay. So we have this joke. We have this family joke, which is like, it's Alex's friend, Brad. Alex's <laughs> friend, Brad. Whenever he comes up, whenever I mention something about Brad's dog. Oh, his so, dog is gorgeous. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? I just want that dog so much. Everybody, every time I mention that, somebody goes, is that Alex's friend, Brad? <laughs> <laughs> so everything that you read about Beyond Telerand, um, just makes you want to go. Uh, Simon Collison, he's one of the folk behind New Adventures Conference. He said that Beyond Telerand's uh, an eclectic lineup across numerous aspects of design and development. And Mark, the host, excels at details. Uh, one of the things that Mark does really, really well is he publishes videos. Um, online for everyone to see. So you can go to uh, vimeo.com slash Beyond Telerand. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the notes. And this year again, Beyond Telerand's happening in Dusseldorf in Germany, May 27th to the 29th. And the tickets are available now for only €249. Euro. So to find out more and book your ticket, go to byndit slash unfinishedbiz. And you can use the offer code unfinished two for 10% off the standard price. So that's beyond Teleround. 
So one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today is this whole kind of mentoring idea that you've been writing about, thinking about for a while. Yeah. So how did that come about? I, well, I was, I keep getting projects through that are maybe not, I can't really take them on myself because I, they're either got very low budgets, um, or the, the deadline's not quite right for me or something like that. And they're just, there's, it's not something that I could take on, but it's a project that I think's worth doing. And, or it's someone that I know that needs something and I know that they haven't got a budget for a good reason. And I was trying to think of ways that I could help these people get these projects done. Um, sort of without someone just being taken advantage of and having to do a project on the cheap. And I've been thinking around how I could possibly be a bit more helpful with sharing sort of design experience and stuff, because I write a little bit, but I don't really feel like I give back to the community quite in the way that I've taken from the community in the in the years that I've been doing this, because I've got so much out of other people's blogs, other people's books, other people's conference talks, and I think it's part of the community that we're in that you inevitably want to sort of give something back. And so I thought, well, I'll see if maybe some people are interested in taking on one of these projects that I've been asked about, and whether I could help mentor them through it. Because the one thing that people tend to lack when they start out in the industry is the experience of client projects. It's very easy to do a side project and that's great and that's a different type of experience in itself and you can learn design development and things like that through that but actually dealing with clients is quite a different art form and oh, yeah. I think that if just going through that process once with someone helping you, I thought that I would have found that useful when I started out and so maybe I could help someone else do that. And so I did. I um, I got, I think, 30 people who were interested in working on the project. And so I spent ages agonising over sort of the right people for the project. So the the people that would suit the, suit the project, I didn't actually, I had to turn down some people because they were just too experienced that it would be unbalanced working with less experienced people on that project. And I thought that if there was more than one person, they may be able to share the responsibilities and it wouldn't feel like so much pressure. And so I ended up whittling it down this list um, of people. And it wasn't that the people weren't suitable for the project. It was more the project wasn't necessarily suitable for the people. Until I ended up with three lovely mentees. And they were actually all happened to be students as well. And they were all interested in... They're all interested in being hybrid designer developers, but they all had particular areas of experience that I sort of put them so they could lead different parts of the project so everyone had their own areas of responsibility to be in charge of. And we're we're doing pretty well. I think it took a while to get going and getting through sort of contracts and things like that was quite tricky. But we're they're just starting to kick it off now and they're doing some really great work and we're having some really interesting discussions about Things like the hamburger icon and stuff like it's that. It's not called the bloody hamburger <laughs> icon. I'd, I'd actually never heard of it called that until Responsive Day Out. Um, yes. Yeah, that was the first time. I, it was quite strange. I don't know where the hell that's come from. So you're most of the way through a project then. This is the first kind of mentoring project then. Yeah, this is the first project. And 
well, I say most of the way. We've been doing it for a, a while, but we've, we're still really in the kicking off stages. We're just, we've, we've got the, the plan of action. We, we know what we need to do and when we need to do it by. Um, but it did take a while to actually kick it off. There were teething problems, which I think every project has to a degree. Um, but part of this was also us getting to know each other better. Because none of the mentees hadn't worked together before. I hadn't worked with any of them before. And so we had to get used to the way we communicate, um, how we like to do things and things like that. Everyone has their own things that they need to compromise on. And so we were sort of working out all of those things to begin with as well. And the, the best way to communicate. So we decided very early on we didn't want to just rely on email because we were getting a lot of emails. And so, um, one of the mentees did a lot of research into project management systems and things like that. And we just, we ended up settling with Basecamp. And so now we're using Basecamp to control communication and they have regular Skype calls and occasionally meet face to face. And so we've got much better structure for communicating now. Cool. I mean, just, could we just wind back a minute? Cause when I read your, your blog post about this, and I sort of I spent the weekend thinking that's such a brilliant idea, but you know how would I go about doing something similar? And then I mean, talk, you talk about client experience. How did you approach this with the client? How did you get the client to agree to working in this way without them thinking this is really odd, or you kind of insinuating somewhere that they're, they're cheap? Uh, you know, I'm going to get a bunch of students to work on this because you haven't got enough money to pay for it. You know, I'm not. That's not what you'd ever say. Um, how did you go about that? Well, it was funny. The first project that I actually had in mind for this was that a friend from school came to me and she wanted a, a site designed and she didn't have a budget that was sort of near what I would expect for a project. And so I thought this would be the perfect project for hers. But then, and I suggested the idea to her, but she actually, she knew someone else that could do it for super cheap and um and very quickly as well and so actually I thought well maybe that's not the ideal project if um because I didn't want there to be too tight a deadline because I think if that if you're trying to rush the work you're it's going to be harder to learn and so I ended up appealing to Twitter and via my blog to see if anyone did have a suitable project that they thought would work and I was very lucky that um Malin Baker he works in the web industry anyway and he had a community site that he has for the village that he lives in and he had a small budget and but it was a not-for-profit site and so he wasn't going to make any money off it so he could never sort of pay a huge amount for it but he'd done the previous version of the site and didn't have time to do a redesign and so he suggested that this would be a good project for that and he'd be very happy to be part of it. So I was actually really lucky that almost the project came to me <laughs> rather than yeah. the other way around. Because it's interesting. I've had a couple of phone calls this week. I had a really nice lady from the Wirral on the phone this week, um, a lifestyle coach. And, you know, she asked the usual questions, you know, the, the how much is it for a website questions. Yeah. And, you know, I talked over what she needed and it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a big job. It wasn't a difficult job. There was branding work and, you know, an overall kind of visual design setting up on some kind of little content management system. So, you know, perch would have been ideal for that. And, you know, a little bit of a blog and, you know, she'd want to put videos up there because she wanted to start doing kind of, uh, you know, a bit of video work. So nothing terribly complicated. And 
yeah, it's always difficult, isn't it? Especially when somebody's on the phone and it's like, and so how much is that going to be? Do you think? And to be honest, I sat and I worked it out and I just thought, do you know what? There's no way that I can put the amount of hours into this that it really needs and, and, and get down to the budget that she, that I thought that she had. Mm. So I said, well, I think, you know, something like that, if we work it a certain way and, you know, if we're all efficient, you know, you should probably budget, you know, somewhere in the region of, you know, two and a half to three grand. Cause I'm thinking you can't really get anything for less than that. Yeah. And then you get that, then you get that kind of spaghetti western tumbleweed. <laughs> yeah. Saddle. And I thought, okay, yeah, that's fine. That is a little more than I thought that it was going to be, she said. And, uh, I said, well, you know, just out of interest, can you tell me if we're not going to do any business? Can you tell me, you know, what you thought? And she said, well, you know, I thought it'd be like, you know, four or five hundred pounds. And I'm thinking, okay. And it made me think when we we're going to talk about this kind of mentoring thing again, it's, I mean, I think that there are just some projects that can never be good business. Yeah. You know, if somebody's got four or five hundred pounds for a complete website, I don't think that there's anybody should touch that with, with a barge pole. Um, but find, yeah, finding the right one for this is, is, is tricky. I wonder how I would have approached it if, if, if there'd have been this kind of, you know, mentoring team or whatever behind, whether I could have just said, Actually, you know, yeah, we can do that if you're prepared to work with some, you know, junior young designers and developers, students, whatever. We could probably do that. I wonder what her reaction would have been. Yeah, it's a, it's a issue because I think one of the things I was try I try to emphasise is that the value isn't necessarily the money in this. And what I'm really hoping is that I'm trying to provide some value myself. So, really, the I'm I'm overseeing what's going on and I'll make sure that it's I'm I've in the contract I've essentially guaranteed that if the work isn't good enough I'll um make up for it. And so that's very brave. Well yeah, I think it was it was a difficult decision but I felt like I needed to provide some kind of reassurance to the client. Is this something that goes out with your name on it? Even if it's a, you know even if you've just overseen it from a mentoring point of view, does it go out with your name on it? Are you ultimately responsible? Well, I don't. I don't know that I would be. I. I don't think there's. I doubt there'll be any mention of me on the site itself or anything like that. But with the amount of, um, the a lot of people are paying a lot of pe- attention to the project and things like that. So there is that sort of level of pressure to get it good. And you know, I actually. I probably wouldn't have done that if I didn't trust the people that I'd found to work on the project. Yeah, um, I mean, I think finding the right people is yeah incredibly important. And that's why it took me so long to sort of work out the, the right people for the project, because I wanted to be sure that these were people that could work together. Um, did you do this just through your own initiative, or did you do it in relation, in cooperation with, uh, you know, college or university or something like that? No, I did it completely myself through, mostly through Twitter and blogging and wow. everyone contacted me via email. I, I, I did ask, um, I mentioned when I wrote about it originally that this would probably be a project that would be more suitable to people that were students or just starting out. Um, so people that would really benefit from the, experience um this wasn't going to be a project to make you lots of money and i did have a few people apply because they 
sort of small agencies and saying, oh, we'd be very interested in this project. And I sort of had to yeah, point out to them that it's point. not really, that's, it's not really going to help them in any way. And, and they probably wouldn't want to work on it because it wouldn't give them the value that they want. And so I did, so I kind of, I did have in mind that it may end up being students and that was very likely. And because, yeah, I had, you, I did have to think about what they get out of it. If, oh, if, I mean, the teaching thing, the, the, you know, the learning experience is just invaluable. That's what I'd hope. <laughs> and do you know what? The amount that I've been learning off it is, um, is quite something. It's not what I expected. I, I've ha- really had to every step of the way question what I do and why I do it that way. When because... you have to explain something to somebody else, something that you just take for granted, and you explain it to somebody else, and it really makes you think about whether or not it's right or not oh yeah i think they've convinced me to change part of my contract <laughs> um which bit the the bit about um the code and how that's licensed and we so we agreed that the best license would be for this project because the client expressed interest in possibly letting other villages that wanted to have a website use the code um to as a basis for their sites and so we had this discussion about um, did the mentees want their work to be used in this way? Um, were they happy with that? And they decided that actually, yes, but as long as it wasn't for profit, so there wasn't a commercial aspect. So we found the right Creative Commons license for that. And so we included that in the contract. And actually, that did make me think about how my code is reused, because often I'll just have that standard thing saying, you license it for one use. Um, because you want the client to come back to you if they want further work done. Never happens though, does it? N- no, it does because <laughs> they'll, yeah, they'll they'll just use it. <laughs> it it's it's good faith really that you put that in. you you trust them to do that. But I often I don't know whether I necessarily want to carry on with projects in that way either. If I'm just maintaining code in the future, that's I I try to create my projects so that my clients can deal with them themselves from then on so that they can edit their own sites. Yeah. And I I I I don't necessarily want to do that much repeat business in that way. I don't want to be on retainer maintenance contracts and things because that's not the fun work in my point of view. So thinking about this kind of like structured learning, project learning that you're getting these people to to do, students to do. I was thinking about that after you wrote your post. I was thinking, you know, putting putting a group of people together myself when I don't know them could actually be quite hard. So I thought if I was going to do this kind of stuff, I would, you know, try to do some kind of university liaison and get maybe a lecturer to to pick a bunch of people. Um, and it was funny. I was in uh, Belfast, as I say, last last week, and the students over in Ulster, University of Ulster, they're going off i think it's this week snow permitting they're all off um interviewing for for placements and you know a few of them said to me you know oh, do, you, do, you, do you take placement students and there's no way we can do that you know not working from home we can't have people here but it got me thinking about you know how how could i help them without taking them on how could i give them a little bit of you know our experience without them having to come here for a year and it did make me think about you know maybe the idea of okay so when a project of this kind of kind comes up, maybe I'll take it to Belfast. You know, maybe I'll just take me and 
you know, a bunch of things to, a, you know, stay in a hotel in Belfast for a week and work with students, you know, in one room in a kind of really agile way or concentrated effort to get this thing done in a week and see how that goes. Oh, that would be a great experience for the students. Because, you know, I went over there and did a workshop and, I, you know, hopefully they really liked it. But it would be so much better. And like you said, the client side of things is just, you, you just don't get that experience when, you, when you're when you just looking at code or Photoshop. Yeah, you can you can mimic it all you like, um, doing a project for a sort of a fake company or something. But it doesn't replicate that communication and sort of dealing with all of the, the feedback and things like that. I mean, I just, I'm just wondering how that might work. You know, let's say that I've got a job that's coming up in, you know, a month or two's time. And I just say, okay, to the, to the lecturers, we're going to work on this thing. You're going to give me a room. You're going to give me three people and we are going to work on this project, uh, you know, throughout the week. And we're going to start on the Monday. I'm going to finish on the Friday. And, you know, one of those, you know, at various points during the week, somebody's going to have to talk to the client at the, at the daily stand up meeting. You know, we always do like a stand up by Skype. Um, and, you know, the student, one of the students every day is going to take control of that. And I just think that would just be a really nice thing to do. I think so. I think that your role in it would be a useful thing because I, we did have similar projects when I was at university. We did have real client projects. We did, we had one particular module where they'd found local people that wanted websites and we would help do them. But the problem was that there wasn't a, a sort of a professional involved with us and so really we were almost being taken advantage of by these local businesses that wanted something done for free and we had yeah. to do it because that would give us the credit for our module and so we didn't actually learn so much as we, we had to work out how to manage the project and things like that but there wasn't anyone that was telling us the right way to do it necessarily or just helping us guide guide us through that project we were very much trying to use common sense and feeling our way through, which, yeah, isn't isn't necessary. It's the way everyone starts out, but it's not as useful as having someone there. Yeah, I might. I think I'm going to do because I'm only an hour away from Manchester, and I do a fair bit with Manchester Met MMU. So actually, I think I'm going to have a word with Richard over there. He's one of the lecturers, and see whether or not we can put something like this together. Because I don't know whether you know. You might have heard this on the Grapevine, but about two years ago. Um, a bunch of people out of the blue. I'm not gonna, I can't, I can't name names because it's a sort of secret project, but a bunch of people, um, designers and developers, including me, get this mysterious email one day from, um, a design company over in the States. And it was, um, I don't know how you fix for this. I've got a really interesting project for you. It's two weeks working in the US, a week in New York and a week in Austin, Texas. And you and like nine other people are going to work for a really cool client making a really cool thing. Um, and I can't tell you any more than that. Are you in or not? <laughs> and, and I knew that I knew the person that was at, at the design company. So I was like, yeah, I'll do that. So I dropped a few things and went over there and it was the most amazing experience. I worked, it was like, we, we, it's like the Avengers of web design, I have to say. Except I'm just like the little pathetic hero that nobody, <laughs> nobody's heard of. Um, it was like there was some serious names there. And what the guy had done was he'd 
it was a very large multinational company that had got into such a big hole with their website. Um, literally, you know, it was, they were just completely paralyzed. They couldn't move. And the design company suggested, hang on a minute, let's just get 10 guys in a room for two weeks and we are going to redesign your site and we're going to get, you know, really good design, you know, design people. We're going to get really good development people. We're going to get, um, you know, people that know about grids and typography and there were like specialists from different areas. Um, we're going to put them in a room for two weeks and they're going to make something amazing. And let's, and as far as the, the big company was concerned, it was a real punt, you know, it was a real punt. Yeah. But I tell you what, the energy that was in that room, the, you know, the energy that came out of it, um, was amazing. And, you know, I was working with people that, you know, I really look up to, I mean, way, way better designers and developers than I'll ever be. And it was just so fabulous to, to be in that room working on those things with people that, you know, you think, oh, blimey, it's him. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, if you could maybe get some of that energy into a student project, you know, there's a real buzz about it. That could be so fun. Yeah, something about that intense period of time would, yeah, really add to it. Oh, I love, I love the idea of that. I really, I think you've really fired me up. We're going to have a word with, uh, with some of the unis about doing something like this because there's no risk apart from the, you know, the client's going to take a punt, obviously. Yeah, but if they can't afford to get something of that quality otherwise, I think that's a, a risk that's worth taking. I'd hope yeah. that that was a risk worth taking. Yeah. No, I'm going to, I'm going to definitely make some calls. Actually, no, I'll have to wait a couple of weeks when I, cause I'm off to Japan. But when I come back, I'm definitely going to make some calls about this because that, that sounds really exciting. It would be good. And you'll blog it all so everyone can see how it goes. Yeah. Oh man, no, that's, yeah, that's a really good idea. Cause I, I really want to do stuff with students this year. I was saying to Anna that, you know, cause Alex is a student and, you know, it really makes me aware of, you know, I'd like to think that people are going and doing interesting things with his course. I'm sure they are. Um, I don't understand what the hell they are, but <laughs> I just thought geology was like looking at rocks. So <laughs> we drive, we drive him nuts because we go out for a walk or something and we go, look, Alex is a rock. <laughs> and then he just goes, oh. you get him to identify the rocks for you. What type <laughs> of rock know. is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How is it spotter. formed? <laughs> rock spotter. No, it's fascinating stuff though. Geology. It makes you, it's like typography. Once you kind of, once you see things, it's really hard to unsee them. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we just, we, but we just drive him nuts. It's like, oh, it's a rock. I should talk about our next sponsor this week. It's Blush, the letterpress printers. You heard of Blush? I have indeed. I follow them on Twitter. I think I have done for a long time because they post lots of photos of very pretty things. <laughs> yeah, they do. They do. And they've done some stuff that, I mean, we all know people that, that have used them for business cards and stationery and things. Um, I, I love their stuff. Blush mix the kind of technology that we use every day, um, with 16th century printing methods. So they provide beautiful letterpress printing for designers and artists and they'll print business cards and Christmas cards and personalized stationery and wedding stationery. If you're going to get married all on beautiful papers that they source from all over the world. So if you can design it, Blush will print it. Have a look at their blog for some of the things that they've been printing recently. Now, if you're new to Letterpress, Mark and his people will help you and advise you at every stage of the project. 
they're really, really nice to work with. And I know from firsthand experience because they just work, they're a few miles from my house. I just like to go and, and hang out there, you know, with the oil and the machines. <laughs> it's kind of smells so good. And if you can't get up to North Wales to visit, then you can ask them to tweet photos of your project while it's being printed. That's really cool. They call it Letterpress Live. That's probably what you've seen. So you can follow them on Twitter at Blush Publishing or just look out for the Letterpress Live hashtag. Everybody lo- loves Letterpress, right? Oh, yeah. And Blush are the people to go to if you want the best printing and service and you want to sp- support a small family business that really, really take pride in what they do. So find out more about what Blush do by visiting blushpublishing.co.uk slash unfinished. Alex did some work experience at Blush. It was a fun, it, it, that kind of thing seems like it could be a really fun place to do, to work. Ah, oh, it's brilliant. He enjoyed it so much. He had to make this uh, poster, I think it was. And they taught him all about hand setting type and, you know, typography techniques. And, oh man, he just came away buzzing. So you got to do his own project as well. That's even more fun. I know. It was great. It I, was I great. used to love playing with those kind of machinery when I was at art school. Doing all, all of the old, old, old style printing. Mm. It was great when I was in Winchester a couple of weeks ago. That's not far from you, is it, Winchester? I'm bad at geography. It's it's somewhere nearish. <laughs> Worse, it's it's south of Birmingham, so it's a southerner. And it was really nice. I got a tour of the uh, the print studios at uh, Winchester School of Art. Uh, so nice to see all the litho and uh, you know etchings and stuff. You know, woodcuts and lino cuts. I used to love doing that. It's good fun doing all of that, playing with the actual stuff with your hands. I don't, I just, I don't do enough. Sue bought me a, a press, an actual Victorian printing press for Christmas a couple of years ago. And I'm, I'm really sorry to say it's just stood in the corner with apes on it. Um, I just need to, you know, it, it, it's, I have to kind of get back into it. It's like getting over that hurdle. Yeah. You, you know, need to have make, a making project. a start. Yeah. A little project to do with it. It's so hard though, you know, make, actually just making a start. It's like making that first mark on something is really hard. Imagine you could do all your own Christmas cards or something next year. Yeah, and I think the thing is, is that I suffer because I think that I need to make something good, you know, and it's, there's a responsibility and I feel you know, kind of like, where is it going to be any good or not? And I've, I've, I've got out of the habit with my, with my own artwork anyway. I've got out of the habit of just playing. You know, I do, I do it with the job, but I don't do my own artwork anymore. And that's a bit sad, isn't it, really? Yeah. Well, part of the fun of playing with those kind of things is the beauties in the imperfection. You can, you get, you, you'll get effects that you didn't realize you could when you accidentally print over something twice and things like that. Yeah. But you know, I was thinking about this when I was walking around Winchester. I, I think that I always liked the process more than the, the kind of looseness of, of working. Mm. I, I thought that I was going to go there and I would be a great, when I went to art school, I thought I was going to go there and be a really good painter and, because at school I was always, you know, I painted nice pictures. And then you get to art school with people that can really paint. And I realised I was hopeless. 
because I used to do this thing where I'd sort of start off in one portion of the canvas and then I'd finish it. You know, it had to be perfect. And then I kind of like move on to the next bit, move on to the next bit, move on to the next bit. Whereas the guy next to me was slapping loads of paint around, you know, and wiping it off with a rag and, you know, this really proper painting. And there's me like coloring in, it's like joining the dots, <laughs> coloring between the lines. So I think that I'm much better at the process. And that's what that, that, I find it a bit daunting doing my own stuff. I should do more. Yeah, I, I used to do a lot of painting. I've got, I've got out of it. I, I do still do quite a lot of drawing, though. I I like doing drawing and trying to work that into web stuff occasionally. So we were going to talk about feedback and yes. clients and how to ask for feedback and, and deal with it. Yeah, we I, got we we got an email this week from a client that we're doing a little job for, and uh, he sent me this really polite email saying, um, "Actually, it doesn't blow me away." And I was like, "Oh, okay." Yeah, I think that it's, it's something that I'm always interested in asking other particularly designers is because feedback's quite a difficult thing to deal with. Not necessarily just because of hurting our feelings and things like that, but you want a particular type of feedback a lot of the time. You want feedback that will help you progress to the next stage, that will help you evolve your design. And sometimes that can be quite tricky to elicit out of particular clients. Some of them just want to be able to say, I like that, I don't like that. And or what will it look like if you make it bright red? And you have to try to work out ways of making them understand how to make the design effective and how it has an effect on the user and try to steer them away from making it about their personal tastes. But I've been I've been looking at a lot of these tools recently. They seem to pop up every now and again. Things like these um, web apps that allow you to upload your mock-ups annotate them and send them to a client for feedback and then the client gives feedback through the app and I do I kind of tend to wonder are we getting a bit caught up there in the process are we trying to sanitize the feedback that we're getting from the clients do we are we trying to get a particular result out of them because it seems to be an unnecessary step in the process there um is it sort of avoiding face-to-face contact or talking to a client on the phone to get the feedback from them um, is it because we're scared of that and we're scared of getting this sort of funny, fluffy feedback where we actually have to try and work out what they really need from it? Yeah, I think you're right. We used years ago, and I don't even know whether it still exists, it was called Concept Share. And it was exactly the same kind of thing where, you know, you'd upload your comps and people could, you know, annotate and there was a whole messaging system around it. Um, and I trialled this for a little while, but I I really don't like that kind of um, abstraction. No. I don't like something getting in the way between, you know, me and somebody else's opinion. Yeah, I think there are certain points when you're getting feedback that you need to actually, you need to be able to either see their faces or hear their tone of voice and preferably both. Because well, you get is, a lot from that. Yeah, you know, I mean, and the other thing I've, I've sort of learned over the years is that People, and not just clients, yeah, people in general are not trained to give designers feedback. No. So th- people can be really unfocused um, and really woolly about things. And it's not that it's not that they they can't articulate what they're trying to say. Uh, well, you know, sometimes that's the case. But it's that we're not asking them the right questions. Yeah. 
So if you if if you just show somebody a comp, I mean, I, we always say this, you know, never never just put something on Basecamp, like uh, you know, work on a homepage concept or something, and stick it up on Basecamp, or send somebody an email with with, with a question, you know, dear Brian, you know, here's here's the design for the new homepage, you know, what do you think? Yeah. It's like, well, what do you think about what? What do you think about the typography, the layout, the colours? Is the logo big enough? What are, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, how do you sort of elicit responses to those kind of questions? Do you ask specifically a list of questions? What do you think of, or how like does this work? And things like, does this particular part of it work? Or do you, yeah? How? What's your what, your way of doing it? Yeah. So recently, I've been playing around with this idea of breaking down the design elements into into separate areas so you know i don't know whether you saw this rock hammer uh toolkit that i put out a couple of weeks ago and there's a samples page in that which is pretty much like a pattern library you know like a style guide or yeah. a pattern primer or something like that and what i will try to do is i'll try to get the client to focus just on specific areas so i want to talk about typography or i want to talk about color and we'll do things like um, we work through a kind of a brand personality interview with the client now. Yeah. So we'll talk about, you know, if your brand was a person, what person would it be? And we'll get them to name specifics and we'll put all this stuff together and we'll focus on individual um, aspects of the design and get them to think really uh, critically about those things. But those things in isolation. Yeah. So that there are no nasty surprises when we come to put everything together and actually produce a page. Um, I think that the idea that we would, you know, work for hours and hours and hours or, you know, days on something and then just show it to the client and go, what do you think? Oh, it's dangerous. Well, do you know, it's really stressful. We did this project with a really lovely company locally a few weeks ago and, because I was traveling to, to Germany quite a lot of that week and the lady that we were working for was, was away a little bit that week. We didn't have the daily communication that I really like to have with people. So it did get to like Thursday and we'd done a whole bunch of stuff and a whole load of work on, on the branding and she hadn't seen it. And it was only a week's work. It was only a week's project. So it was really <laughs> stressful because <laughs> we had this conversation on the Friday morning and I was thinking, please like it. Um, and there were some changes, but there was nothing that we couldn't get done in the time. Yes, yeah, it's difficult that because I feel like that's that's what the admin have left us the legacy and of a lot of the advertising where they where they did used to do these sort of big impact, big reveals, mm. and it it's sort of we spent a long time trying to get away from that now, and there are still a lot of people that. Work, like to work in the more traditional way, <laughs> where oh, I mean, they'd I've, much I've, rather go off and sort of keep these things to themselves until they're sure that it's perfect. I saw an agency literally only a few months ago that was working on this project, same project as I was, um, but in a different area. And they literally did that thing where they'd made really lovely Photoshop comps of all the key pages and they printed them A3 and they were on boards mounted on boards on easels <laughs> yeah yeah i had a very similar situation um where um an agency yeah they've done these very polished mock-ups and stuck them in um, pictures of devices no. so you couldn't actually see what the the rest of the page looked like you just see what the top bit did um and there wasn't actually any further information about it 
do you know what I'm going to do? I'm thinking about how I, because we, we haven't really got a portfolio on the stuff site. Um, cause I put the whole thing together in like a weekend and I need to do a portfolio. And I've got one rule at the moment in my design thinking, which is I am not going to bloody well put anything in a device. Because no. everybody does that thing now. They like, they'll steal an iMac image from the Apple website and they'll put, that'll be one or a laptop. There'll be, there'll be a MacBook Air, you know, with, or MacBook Pro with a screen grab and then there'll be an iPad and then there'll be a, a phone. So I'm not going to do that. Well, it seems like on one hand, we're saying to people, don't use um, device-based breakpoints in your CSS. And then the other hand, sticking things in pictures of devices. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. I love that. I love that. So, you know, it's just that people did that. You're right. People, they left us that legacy. It's like the Mad Men legacy. And yeah, so, I, it's, it's not good. I, I try to... So I warn a client very early on, I say I work very iteratively and you will be seeing things that are very rough. So do bear this in mind that when I'm showing things to you, they're not supposed to be perfect. These are supposed to be a good way of us um, opening the communication channels because I know that often it's easier for you to feedback on something you've seen rather than telling me all these things you want um, without sort of getting an idea of how they might work. And so I send... I mean, I send some fairly embarrassing sketches to clients and you wouldn't think that I sort of studied art and design and things because I, I send these hand-drawn um, wireframes and things that I've just sketched into my notebook, take a photo of my phone and email them straight to the clients. Yeah, see, this is, this is that kind of sketching thing is so, so much of a time saver because, I mean, when Sue, our designer, started uh, back in January, she was very much of this kind of... I'm, I'm going to make three layouts in Photoshop. I'm going to do a desktop, tablet, and phone version. And over the last few weeks, we've been trying to, you know, move away from that. And you know, if you know what the buttons are going to look like, and the forms, and the general typographic hierarchy, um, you don't need to actually um, see a finished comp of a login form. No. You know, when you can just sketch it out and it takes 30 seconds. Yeah, you want to communicate the concept behind it. You don't necessarily need to show them what the finished product will look like because that's what the finished product is for. Well, and hopefully they've got enough of an imagination or you can teach them enough that they can make that mental leap and they can go, oh, yeah, I can see what that's going to be now. Whereas in the past, people have, and I know why this is, right? People have gone down the route of saying, we have to have a Photoshop comp, a really high fidelity visual of every page that we're going to build or every page that we want the client to sign off. And the reason for that was that obviously it took a lot of hours to make those things. And therefore you could charge for a lot of hours. It was about, it wasn't about finishing the job. It was about racking up bills into, and, and uh, design artifacts. And tying the client down to things so that they couldn't change their minds as well. Yes, exactly. It was like these things, they served all kinds of purpose. They were like sign off points and billing points and there were blueprints for developers as well. Yeah, it's definitely not an agile way of working. No, definitely not. So what I've been trying to do, and it doesn't always work, do you share a Dropbox with a client? Uh, occasionally, yeah. Um, I'm sort of, I'm happy to, but I, it's not something I do every single project. Ah, oh, no, we do. We, we actually open the Dropbox. We, we, we might have some stuff that we're just keeping, you know, on the network separate. So you know, we, we might work a little bit in secret, but a lot of the time we just work straight out the Dropbox. And if they want to, you know, dig in there and open up some files and, you know, even put content into an HTML document. I don't mind. It's good. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm easy with that kind of way of working. I'm, I think it's, 
I think we need to not be shy about it because we're not in the business of creating sort of the perfect the perfect bit is supposed to be the bit we produce at the end. The, that's supposed to be the, the lovely final thing. It, yeah. All the bits leading up to it don't need to be perfect. That's not the point. <laughs> i tell you what I have learned, though, over the years, is that we are in control of the process, or should be, and we have to be a bit confident about how we want to run things because at the end of the day, the client's paying us for a successful job. Um, how we get there should be really down to us rather than down to them. So it's okay to dictate the way that we're going to do stuff. Like, for example, we say we never send you anything by email. Mm. You know, we never just send you something and, and, uh, and just say, you know, what do you think? Cause, you know, down that road leaves, you know, madness. <laughs> oh, I do. I, I do quite frequently send things via email, but I always accompany it with, um, a lot of writing. Right. And I will, Write out, I mean, you can't explain everything in minute detail. But I want to talk to people on I the do. phone or on Skype the whole time. I like that, but I can be, I miss things out sometimes. I like doing that when I'm, when we're feed, when we're getting feedback and things like that, because then I can do it at the same time as taking a lot of notes. And that seems to be more productive for me. But when I'm actually communicating my ideas, I can sit there for a while and actually make sure that I've covered all the all the areas that I wanted to hit, and then often I'll so I'll send that over. They can have a little look through, and then we'll follow it up with a, with a chat. Do you ever work with the client in the room, or you know, do you go there and do design workshops with them? No, no, I've I've pretty much work remotely exclusively. Because I've been trying this out. It, it stemmed from uh, the work that we did for ISO last year. And one of the things that we found really useful was to, I mean, there was a, like a core team of, uh, David and I and, uh, a couple of two or three people from ISO. And we were like the core design and dev team, but there were lots of other people that were kind of making decisions and, you know, needed to see, uh, what we were doing around the edges. So we would work for a while. Um, and then we would have design workshops and they would only be, uh, you know, let's say half a day and we'd get everybody in the room. Anybody was welcome. And it doesn't matter whether they were, you know, part of the design team or not, whether they, you know, were working in the canteen, it didn't matter. Everybody was welcome. They could bring in whatever device they wanted to check the code in here. Everything was open and everybody was welcome to make suggestions about what we were doing. And then if people said, ah, it's looking a little bit small, that text, you know, you could, you could quickly write some more code. And you go, oh no, that's better. And those kind of really interactive design workshops, I've done a lot of those over the last uh, few months, and they're really good. No, they sound, that, that sounds good. I, I tend to have very small clients, so I don't know whether that necessarily... It actually, it may be a very easy way of working with a small client. Well, one of the nice things that we, we did, we, we wrote some rules. <laughs> <laughs> we wrote some client rules. And one of them was... If you don't show up to the workshop, you don't get to have an opinion on the design. <laughs> That's a good call. No, no, because what that did was that we even got like the uh, the chief executive of ISO. He would come in because he knew that he had to come in if he was going to you know look at things. Because that way, you don't get to the you know two days before the end of the project, and then you get the email with the CEO's helpful suggestions. Mm. Um. You know, because people always really, you know, they, they want to put their own mark on things. Absolutely. Um, and if you give them loads of opportunities to put their mark on things, um, and 
you know, you can disagree with them in a nice kind of friendly setting, then they're less likely to make those silly demands at the end, which everybody hates. <laughs> it's it's a- fun. You should try it. You should try it. Yeah, it sounds like it. But I've, it's one of the reasons why I've actually been keen to join in on a hack day at some point. Because I think I would really enjoy that experience of getting sort of mucky with everyone else, like actually working on something and producing it all together at once. But yeah, it does I mean, appeal to me. And I know that development hack days, they often say they lack designers and they'd love to have designers there to work with. Well, it sounds pretty similar to the approach that we were talking about with students earlier on, actually. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing. Yeah, it's just yeah the benefit of having people in a room. I'll tell you one thing that didn't happen in that um, Avengers project that we did was that there was absolutely no egos in the room. And that's a very important part of being a designer, I think. It's, it's tricky because by our very nature, we have to have an element of ego. Because otherwise we would never have the confidence to share any of our work with anyone. But then we also need to get over that ego in a way that we're not precious about the designs we're doing because ultimately we are doing work for clients and we need to do something that works for them. And it's, it's, I think that's a tricky balance. Do you, do you find that a tricky balance? Sort of trying not to be hurt when you get particular feedback from clients. Yeah, I still take things po- uh, personally sometimes. Um, not as much as I used to. Um, and I think that, I think I'm a little more balanced now yeah. than maybe I was, you know, when I started. I used to be quite belligerent, really. Yeah. Um, and I think I've mellowed quite a lot over the last few years. Yeah, it's very but easy it, to say, oh, say, well, they've hired me to be the expert, so I will tell them what's good design. <laughs> well, yeah. And, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're solving a problem. You know, we're not there. Or hopefully they realise that we're not there to make them happy necessarily. No. We're there to solve the problem that they asked us to solve. Um, but you know, it's easy to say that when there's, when there's people that you got to work with because everybody's got feelings. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've had to say to myself and every time I do get feedback that kind of makes me feel like, Oh, I, I wish that they'd like that a bit more. I think so actually the best work I do is the work where I've had a lot of feedback from the clients and we've evolved the design together. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, it's, it's, because... it's good to have someone else challenging your decisions because that really reinforces why you did them. You really have to justify yourself. Yeah, and it forces you, it pushes you further. I've been finding this interesting because, you know, we've never had an employee. I've never had to work with another designer. I've never had to, um, be, you know, art direct anybody else ever before. And it's been really interesting over these last three months because I've done exactly that. And I've been looking at somebody else's work thinking, I'm not, I mean, and I've found it really hard to like leave my own preferences behind as well. Mm. You know, that whole kind of, that's not how I would do it. I've tried not to do any of that. Um, but you know, you've got to look at something and go, do you know what? That's just, uh, that navigation's too stingy, you know, and learning how to give that feedback, um, I think helps me take it as well. Yeah. 
I th- I think that the that's one of actually the most useful things about going to art school or studying design at university is that often you will learn how to give good constructive feedback because constructive criticism is a huge group crits are a huge part of a lot of design education and you have to learn how to say something where you're giving them a productive result rather than just hurting their feelings. Yeah, I mean, Mark Bolton wrote something about this uh, last year. I think he was talking about design crits. So I'll find the article and uh, put a link in the show notes. It was, a, it was a really good article. I do remember that one. And I tried to bring in some of those points that he made into these design workshops mm. because, you know, with the best will in the world, sometimes people just say stupid things. Yeah. Well, I had the same, I, at the same time, I was thinking about that because I'd recently done a project and I'd been posting part of the project. I talked about it with the client is they wanted to get a bit of publicity for it and they wanted to get feedback from potential users through Dribble and Forest. So Dribble's more design focused, um, way of sharing teasers for your work and Forest is design and development. And so I post, I was dutifully posting different stages of my design work onto these two sites. And so much of the feedback I was getting just wasn't helpful. Well, it's superficial, isn't it? How can somebody possibly be able to comment on something without knowing, you know, how you arrived at that decision? Well, yeah, you can provide people with an element of context. Um, I think that, and that's very important, is to provide them with that context, why you're doing it, who you're doing it for. Um, all of these different things. But you just, you'll end up with people, some people going, no, I don't like it. And other people going, oh, that's lovely. And actually, neither's terribly helpful. As much as it's nice having people say nice things about your work, um, if you're trying to improve upon it, it's not necessarily the most helpful thing. And so I ended up writing a, a post about the way that I thought that people should feedback to each other um, on those kind of things in order to help each other. Well, it, I think we just have to focus a client's attention on a certain aspect that we need feedback on. Yeah. It's like, you know, okay, so today I really want to talk to you about typography. And, you know, we're going to choose typefaces and type treatments, and I'm going to show you some options where, you know, everything's really kind of wide open and another, other options where different typefaces are, you know, much more condensed. And, you know, we're going to talk about the direction that, you know, this thing's going to go in. And that way I find that, they don't go off on tangents and go, oh, you know, you're using last year's logo. <laughs> yeah. And when you just show them a comp, you know, when you just don't know how you show it to them on Basecamp or email or whatever, if you show somebody a full page, they can't be focused. They can't possibly be focused on like the thing that you need feedback on because their brain's going to be all over the place. Yeah, it's, that it is diff- very difficult. I think it's actually funny because it also works. When you're thinking about responsive design, though these sort of two two areas have started coming together now because actually it's beneficial when you're doing responsive designs as well to not show everything in a static comp all at once and start thinking about it in a more modular way as well. Yeah, I mean, we've just got so much to, to learn still. <laughs> I, th- I don't think there'll ever be a point where we'll stop. I think that's one of the great things about the web is that it will always be evolving at a point where we'll be eternally trying to catch up. But I, I love this this thing you were thinking about in terms of ego, though. Um, 
Because there is this fine line, isn't there, between people thinking that you are confident um, and people thinking that you're arrogant. Yeah. And I'm not, and I'm not just talking about, you know, design work here now. I'm talking about, you know, when we write something, for example, you know, it really, really annoys me when, um, somebody will write something which is, you know, really kind of impassioned, um, but personal, uh, opinion about something, you know, whether it's responsive design or, you know, how we should work or methodologies or whatever. And, you know, somebody says, yeah, this works for me. Yeah, this is, this, this works for me and my clients and it's a really good way of working. And then you get people on the outside going, no, oh, well, you know, look at him trying to tell us all what to do. Oh, yes. That has, that has been driving me mad recently. <laughs> people that I keep mean, people saying go, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's okay for him and his clients because, you know, he, yeah, in between speaking, he only gets to do this. You know, <laughs> you know, we, we work in nine to five jobs and, you know, we can't possibly, listen, just, if it works for one person, then that's great. I, oh, yeah. It's you. Does anyone ever have the room to write a blog post or something where they put in every little tiny exception and edge case? I don't think so. I don't think we're going to spend our whole time writing, this is, this works really well. Oh, but if you happen to be working in this situation, then maybe you try it this way. It's like, we can only ever speak from our own point of views and our own experiences. And sometimes, I know, you know, during the book writing process, sometimes, uh, in hard-boiled, Chris Mills would come back to me and he'd go, that really is pretty much, you know, you must be the only person that can do this because, you know, you work on your own and you've, you know, you can <laughs> steamroller the client to work in this particular way. Yeah. You know, that's not, you know, maybe you should temper that and think about what happens for people. It'll make a better book if you think about how people within certain, you know, corporates or government departments or whatever, you know, how they might approach that problem in a, in a different way to you so yeah you've got to be balanced but yeah there's no way you're just going to write something otherwise it's just going to be neutered isn't it it's not going to yeah. have no opinion at all well and it's not necessarily going to be true because you don't have the experience of everyone else and when we read we read with our own context so we i think we're smart enough to be able to take things and know what applies to us and what doesn't I think that if you're asking someone to rewrite what they've written so that it applies to you you're actually doing yourself down because you're saying I'm incapable of understanding how to distinguish the way this works for you from how it might work for me yeah and I would much rather read something that was you know impassioned and opinionated because then it makes you go yeah actually he's making a good point there I could maybe you know I could maybe change something this this made me think of a, a post that I wrote about um, it was about the issues of women speakers at conferences and the topic's kind of irrelevant but it's um I was trying to cover too much in that post because I was trying in my head I was thinking oh so and so is going to challenge me on this and that other person will challenge me on that and so I was trying to write a post that would satisfy every possible challenge I would get so that I got as few challenges as possible when I wrote in as few mean comments as possible and I got to the point where it was becoming such a soul-sucking task I just scrapped the whole lot and just rewrote what I felt and put at the top a note very clearly saying, this is what I feel and it, this is only my experience. And so I actually at that point did make a proper note saying that I don't include every single edge case in this and it's only from my point of view. But I think we should expect that from people, from their writing. We should expect that it's coming from their point of view. In the same way as when you see a talk at a conference. You yeah, I, mean, I loved... That, so. 
I loved, again, we'll find a link to this. I loved your talk at Responsive Day Out. Yeah. Because, you know, you were saying a lot of things that I agreed with, but you were saying them in, in a way that I thought, God, that's how I would have said it. You know, it, it was just so refreshing to hear somebody, you know, with an opinion. Um, and it really, really, um, disappoints me when people will go, yeah, it's preaching. You hear that a lot, don't you? Mm, you hear yeah. people go, oh, you know, he was just preaching that, you know, this is the way to go. Um, and it's not preaching. It's just having an opinion and being enthusiastic about something. And yeah, we all know that we get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're not actually, we're not telling people they have to do it the same way as us as well. We're not trying to convert people. Um, I, I had this conversation with someone the other day. Um, I was complaining that I was saying I don't use Gmail. Um, I was saying I don't really understand how people can use these particular buttons on Gmail. I was finding them very confusing. And a lot of people were then sending me rings and rings of messages on, oh, well, this is why you should use Gmail and this is how you should use Gmail. You should use X app and Y app. And I just wrote a thing saying, no, I use Fastmail and I use it with Mail app. Uh, and I'm not going to try and convert any of you to do it. It just works for me and that's fine. <laughs> Because it's 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 a waste of time trying to force everyone to do exactly the same thing as you. Yeah, I mean, it's just just no point. But it it does annoy me. It does annoy me. Um, I mean, I I know I've written things in the past, and um, you know, I've, maybe maybe now with the benefit of hindsight, I would have you know gone back and been a little bit more measured um, about what I wrote. But you know, I, when people go, oh, no, it's just being black and white. Yeah, well, no, actually, in in real, real world, things are shades of grey as well, and you should be able to see what goes in the middle, like you say. Yeah, I th I think it's an insult to your reader's intelligence if you have to explain every tiny thing. And I'd much rather, you know, I'd much rather read something from somebody that you know had a bit of personality. Yeah, you know, this whole kind of th th people can have big personalities and have big egos uh, without being arrogant or obnoxious or anything like that. Absolutely. And you can read multiple articles on the same topic from all of these different people and you can use that to make your own informed decision. And I think that's one of the, the great things about the amount of information that's out there and the amount of people that's sharing all this knowledge is it is actually enabling us to make really well-rounded decisions about things because there are all these strong opinions battling against each other. Yeah, I think, to be honest, I mean, there's been a bit of criticism over the last couple of weeks of uh, people, you know, ah, people, negative people out there that have been writing stuff about, um, you know, this person or that this person said this or that person said that. And, you know, they're trying to tell me how the best, you know, how best to, to do something. Mm. You know what? It's just about maturity. You know, you need to have the maturity, like you say, to be able to, um, you know, look at something, weigh it up, say, well, Actually, no, that's, that's not going to work for me, or I just think that's plain wrong. And, you know, I'm going to take what it, take away from it what I can and, you know, maybe add to it myself. Um, you know, without, without getting, uh, without getting negative and narky. And that's the best possible, most productive thing, which is something that Anna wrote a post about this week is if someone's doing something in a way that you don't like or you don't agree with, the most, is the most, it's not positive to sit there and whinge about it. The most positive thing to do is to go and either lead by example or to go and actually write the way that you think it, sh you think it should be done and share your ideas. There's, there's no reason why you can't do that. That's the, the great thing about the web is it's open for anyone to share whatever they like. And so 
if you think someone's doing something completely wrong, and even if you think it's damaging, then you go and explain a good way of doing it. And sort of yeah. take that positively. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've been arguing, not arguing, but <laughs> I've been debating this week about uh, icons with Jordan Moore. Um, I've not actually met Jordan. Have you met Jordan Moore? No, I haven't, no. I he does some good so. stuff. He's got a name like a country singer. <laughs> so I always, have, I always have jokes about him kind of wearing hats and rattlesnake shoes. But anyway, he was talking about uh, icons. And yeah, you know, he had he had one opinion. I had another opinion. We ended up meeting in the middle, and I think we ended up with something that was, you know, pretty worthwhile. Worthwhile. Um, that kind of discourse is really valuable, you know. And and, and GitHub, you know, it's for collaboration on projects, really valuable. Oh, I think having someone to play devil, devil's advocate is actually very useful. And I, it's something I found myself doing a bit with the mentees and I find myself doing on Twitter all the time. And it's not necessarily trolling people, but um, just questioning people's reasons why and try, challenging them on sort of why they think that's the best way of doing something. And I like people doing that to me because it actually makes me think about what I'm doing a bit more because I've often when you're designing or developing something, you get so tunnel vision into it that you're not actually considering everything around it. And this is something that I have really missed. I think it's I think it's affected my design work negatively over the last ten years, really. Not having somebody that really pushes me or challenges me the whole time. Yeah. And you know, more recently, now that we're you know, with there's two of us and we're doing stuff, I feel so much better about the work that I'm doing because you know, there's if it's just too easy you know, then, then it's. I don't think it's as valuable. No, no, you're 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 not going to produce your best work if you're just sort of sailing through it, easily. going through the motions. Yeah, yeah. But I, yeah. I've been the same. I've been the same. It's very good uh, being in a relationship with someone that does similar kind of work to you, and being able to challenge each other, and also obviously being close enough that you can actually really play devil's advocate without hurting someone's feelings, and that's when you produce your really good work when you really feel like you're fighting um, for why you think something works. I, th- I yeah, think I'm... that's a, a really good... I think if you can find working relationships where you can do that, that's sometimes why I envy people that do have uh, work within agencies and things like that. To be able to have that kind of interaction would be amazing. Yeah, no, I think I've really missed that. And uh, like you say, it's being criticised is a really good thing, you know, if, if, you do, if it's done in a certain way. Yeah. You know, and if it's, you know, you leave your feelings at the door and somebody says to you, listen, I don't think you've actually done that in the best way that you could, you know. Um, I think that we could improve it if you work in a certain way or you do a certain thing. Oh, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's so constructive criticism is where it's at. <laughs> yep. I think that it's a really great skill to learn and you can you feel like you can actually be useful to other people as well if you can give good constructive feedback. And not, and not have, not, be accepting if someone doesn't take that feedback on as well. I think that's part of it. If you you can't get offended if you've made a suggestion and someone says, actually, with respect, I don't think that's the way I want to do this. And that's fine and, as well. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we've been finding useful about these design workshops is that if you can get a relationship going with somebody so well that they can say something to you and then, you know, if you don't agree with them, you can just go, no, actually, no, you're just a complete idiot. That's not going to work. You know, it shouldn't work that way. Um, and you can be open and honest and, you know, without hurting their feelings. Yeah, I think 
it's it's difficult. It's something you have to practice. But I think I'm, it's a, definitely a good skill. I'm practicing more. We need to wrap it up. Yes. <laughs> we do need to wrap it. I could talk to you about this stuff all day. Yeah, it's um, good fun. It is good fun, but I need to go and get a new tire for my car. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need to head off to the gym. <laughs> Oh dear. Okay, well you go off to the gym and I'm going to go and spend 80 quid on a new tyre for my Honda. Okay. And uh, thank you very much for taking the time to to be on the show today. I really, really enjoyed it. Will you come on again? Yes, please. Yes, I would okay. like to. <laughs> Anytime. So where can people find you? How can they get in touch? People can find me at Laura Kalbag on anything. Um, I'm laurakalbag.com. And I am Laura Calbag on app.net and on Twitter. And then I think any, any service I use, I'm Laura Calbag on it. It's nice and easy. Great. And you can email me at hehas at unfinished.bz and Anna, who's on vacances en France at the moment, at shehas at unfinished.bz or both of us at they have at unfinished.bz. And you can find all the links we mentioned in the show notes at unfinished.bz slash 12. That's the number 12. And you can ask us questions and suggest topics by messaging us on Twitter at unfinishedbz. So thanks again to our fantastic sponsors, uh, Beyond Telerand and Blush Publishing. And I'll be back in two weeks. Next week, um, Anna will have another guest co-host and the week after too. So I'm looking forward to being in Japan and listening to the show. So thanks, Laura. Thank you for having me. See you soon. Bye.